Over these recent weeks, as we've studied about this greatest of enemies of our souls, temptation, we've come to understand that temptation has several elements that make up its arsenal of weapons. Each of those elements are very effective in the goal of drawing our souls into sinful behavior and corruption. And I've mentioned to us that one of the advantages that the devil has and his demonic followers have is that they can see us, but we can't see them. And they know what our propensities are. They know what causes us to be angry. They know what causes us to be envious, covetous. And so they're very effective in their use of temptation to draw our souls into sinful behavior and corruption involving each of those things that appeal to us. And as we've said so often that sin has at its heart and its core this matter of the power of the temptation. And temptation has two driving forces within it. As we've said before, one of those forces comes from within our own souls. The other comes from an outside force. That inside force comes from our own old sin nature that was born into us at birth. And it gets triggered by our natural lusts. I don't know how comfortable you are with thinking those thoughts about your own soul. But folks, it's reality. How do we know that? These scriptures tell us that it is. The temptations within us come because we have propensities towards those things of a sinful nature. And then to add to that, there's an outside force that's driven almost entirely by the devil and by his legion of numberless demons. Now here in the scripture passage that I'll read for us again in a moment, we're given a clear example of how the devil plies his subtle temptations in an effort to draw the Lord Jesus away from his appointed mission. Because that's what he wants to do with each of us every day. And he's doing this with the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus was sent to seek and to save hapless and corrupt souls like ours. Thankfully, also, in his righteousness, though, Jesus would not succumb to the wiles of the devil, as would we. But he would instead use the power of the word of God, the power of the word of God to dismantle the devil's temptations and to dispatch the devil with just a flick of the tongue. I love to read these simple words where Jesus just simply says to Satan, get thee behind me, Satan. Thankfully, again, Jesus was not taken in by Satan's temptation. We want to remind ourselves that Jesus was able to do that because he did not come into this world with those same sinful propensities towards the things of this world the things of the flesh, the things of the devil that you and I came in with. Jesus was born into this world, and this is just a reminder, we've said this so many times. Jesus was born into this world pure and holy without any of the corrupt DNA within him that's present within you and me. 
Let me give you those words again. They're in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, where the angel was saying to Mary, Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Jesus was born the Son of God. His DNA came from God Himself, making Him absolutely holy, without spot, stain, wrinkle, or blemish. And praise be to God for that. But again, you and I were not born holy as Jesus was. We were instead born with a nature that is already inclined towards sin, and it's easily tempted by it. We may not think that, but it's so. And these scriptures warn us that sin has a power within it that you and I are not equipped within ourselves to resist. And temptation is sin's most formidable weapon. And you and I need to take warning from these scriptures that if the most innocent of all human beings, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, who had never experienced any form of corrupt nature, if they could fall victim to temptation's ploys, then you and I are surely subject to the beguiling ways of sin. And then we also see in these scriptures how almost immediately after Adam and Eve had given in to sin's temptation, that their son Cain, that DNA flowed from them into their son Cain. And their son Cain did the very same as they did. And though Satan's name's not specifically mentioned in Cain's sin, we can clearly see Satan's handiwork in the behavior of Cain as Cain in his jealousy over the way that God approved of his brother's sacrifice, but rejected his own, contrived and then carried out this plan to kill his innocent brother, Abel. Consider these words that God gives to us here in chapter 4 of Genesis. How an all-knowing God knew the thoughts and saw the murderous planning that was taking place in Cain's mind. And folks... God demonstrates this to us so that you and I can know we can't hide our thoughts from God. When we have these sinful thoughts, His Holy Spirit is in us and He knows what we're thinking. God knew what Cain was thinking and He called Cain aside and He warned him against what he was about to do. He said to Cain, why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? By the way, I want to mention that in 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. We have this verse that I've quoted to us often, which says that there is no temptation that will ever come to us. It's not common to each one of us, but he will provide. God will always provide a way of escape. That's what God's doing right here. He's demonstrating that verse right here to us as he talks with Cain. He says, Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, then sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you, but you must master it. That's God's warning to Cain before he ever committed his sin. Folks, in these words we can clearly also see the steps towards sin that God warned us about in James Chapter 1, verse 14, where he said, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. 
Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That was taking place with Cain. With him, the temptation to sin is personified as being almost having a life force of its own. It is so powerful within him. And it might have had. But at least sin had the subtle power of the devil embedded within it, provoking him on to do evil things and to bring about evil behavior in his conduct. As we'll see from these words in our scripture text today, the use of clever words is one of Satan's favorite ploys. Listen and follow along with me. This is those words in chapter 4 beginning in verse 1 that I've read to us often over these last three or four weeks. Luke 4, beginning of verse 1. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. May I comment there? He was tempted for 40 days. He wasn't just tempted by those three temptations. They were just an example of and part of the overall temptation. Jesus was tempted for 40 days, and that's why it can be said in other portions of Scripture that he, is, he was tempted in every way, just as we are. And so this was taking place with Jesus, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours." And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. May I comment about that last phrase there, until an opportune time. There were other opportune times, many of them possibly in the life of Jesus over the next three years before his crucifixion. But I believe that the Lord was here referring specifically also to that which took place in the Garden of Gethsemane, where the devil was tempting the Lord Jesus to not go through with the crucifixion. That was an opportune time for the devil. Often, as we begin these messages, I'll pose a question for us to answer as we study through the scripture text that we're examining for the day. And questions really can be useful tools when used in the right way. They can be very useful and helpful tools. But as we've been finding out 
over these recent weeks, the demonic tempter, Satan, has the skill to turn any God-given useful tool into a corrupt weapon to use against our souls. And that's so in this text with the simple misuse of questions by Satan. Again, questioning is not in itself a bad thing. Questions are actually a very necessary part of most every conversation and every behavior. And questioning is a thing that you and I must do continually in order for us to make right choices. Simply put, questioning is a natural part of each of our thought processes throughout most all the moments of our lives. It's been so for me, both in my personal life and in my business practices. But unfortunately, in most circumstances, I did not realize at the time the dangerous ground that I was treading on with all my questions. In my years of working in the business world, I would often use the philosophy that you can question any and every element of your business practice without, without concern because if it is valid, it should stand up to questioning. I believe that most business people follow that philosophy because if something will not stand up to questioning, then it's not valid and it should fall and it should not be a part of what you do. So for the most part, questioning business practices has merit. But I've since also come to understand that questioning can and does have a very difficult side to it. Even questioning that's done in an innocent manner can be potentially destructive. And that's so whether we're talking about business practices, but it's especially true when we are talking about matters that concern the truths and the validity of God's word. Many of the modern-day theologians would argue that questioning biblical truths is still an appropriate thing to do. That God's truths are so solid, they're so infallible, so unchanging, so powerful, that those truths can stand up to any test. And we who have Christ as our Savior know that what they're saying is true. It should stand up to any test. But at the same time, we also know that real life is just not that simple. That although there is no possible weakness within the truths of God, our own individual naive and vulnerable souls are still a part of the equation. And there's a great deal of weaknesses within your and my thoughts and personalities. And that weakness and that vulnerability is common to every soul, without exception. And that has been so throughout all of time. Adam and Eve knew about the truths of God. But unfortunately, their hearts were vulnerable to this matter of questioning. And somehow, Satan knew that. And he used it. He simply formed the question, and I'll paraphrase it for us. He said, is God's way always the right way for you? Should you not be able to make choices for yourself? Folks, one of the greatest difficulties that has come into our thought processes over the last hundred years, and it's been accepted. It was taught in my high school back in the 1950s and 1960s. It's this philosophy that says, what is right for you may not be right for me. And what is right for me may not be right for you. We accepted that. 
as truth. And it's not. It's not. Satan simply formed that question within the minds of all of those who came after hapless Eve in her naive and vulnerable state. Again, the question that he formed in Eve's mind, is God's way always the right way for you? It may be right for someone else, but it may not be right for you. And he was saying, shouldn't you be able to make your own choices? And folks, once the naive and innocent mind of Eve accepted that kind of questioning, her resolve to trust the precepts of God was broken. It was broken and failure became the inevitable result. Once a person crosses that line and believes that he or she is able to discern whether God is right or wrong in his teachings and believes that he or she is able to discern the truth for themselves, the battle for their soul is over and it's been lost. That battle has been lost. I'm going to say that again. Once a person, once you or I cross that line and believe that we're able to discern whether God is right or wrong in His teaching and believe that we are able to discern truth for ourselves, then the battle for our soul is over and we have lost that battle. And it all begins with a simple question within a naive heart. And a person begins to make choices, choices that they never should make. And folks, I mentioned this last week. But note that this choice, this word choice, is the exact word that's used in so many of today's secular debates, especially in the abortion debate. A simple question is all that it takes. Should not a woman have the right to make choices for her own body? Should she not have the right to choose? Simple question. Now, unfortunately, as I mentioned for the babies, that simple question costs thousands of them their very lives every day, every day. Another question of those kinds is one that we dealt with most every day in our teaching ministry there at French Camp. This one involves the studying of science, the teaching of the science of the origins of the universe. Those matters are filled with the wrong kinds of questions. So often, especially in our public school system and in our college campuses, but they're especially difficult for vulnerable and innocent children. In our teaching there at French Camp, we sometimes use the observatory facilities. And there we clearly say the words from the scriptures that the heavens declare the glory of God. But then as we would go about our presentations we'd find it difficult not to also bring into the conversation some of the standard wording that's used by the secular world. Like those words that are used so freely on those PBS programs like Nova and Nature. And interspersed within those presentations, we'd find ourselves saying words like, the light that emanates from the Crab Nebula takes millions of years to reach the earth. Now on the surface, those words sound like a simple statement. But with only a moment's thought, we know that it can also bring in questions and can cause us to begin to question those things that 
we've been taught in our Sunday school classes and in our study of the scriptures. How can such reasoning fit within the plain and simple truths about creation? Phrases like billions of years. How often do you hear that? I would suggest every time that you're watching anything to do with science and the universe. Because those words bring to mind, billions of years bring to mind the popular belief about the evolutionary process. Now, yes, there are some strongly believing Bible scholars out there that can work their way through those thoughts and those considerations and still remain faithful to the truths of God. But that might not be so with less prepared minds like mine and yours, and especially the minds of innocent children who are taught to trust their teachers. What are they to do? All of the textbooks have all of these words within them. And the students are then tested on those words. And they have to write down answers to questions that are wrong. It's a dilemma, a paradox, especially for those young and innocent minds of children. All that the world, the flesh, and the devil need to do is to produce just a simple question. And then doubt can begin to take control. Now here in today's scripture, Satan sought to arouse questioning within the, the mind of the Lord Jesus. And he did it by using the small and seemingly innocent word, if. He said to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And then he also said, if you are the Son of God, then throw yourself down from here. Because the angels then will catch you up and keep you from dashing your foot against a stone. Now you recall that it was only just a short time earlier after Jesus had been baptized by John, that God had thundered out from the heavens, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. But here now, with Satan, Jesus was weak, and he was vulnerable after having fasted for so long in the desert. And he was fully human as well as fully God. And so he was truly weak And Satan trying to seize on the opportunity and to exploit Jesus' weaknesses, he shrewdly employs the beguiling use of questioning, cleverly using this word, if. And if is such a small word, but it is not inconsequential. It never is inconsequential in its impact. If carries with it all sorts of questions. Here Jesus was being tempted to question several things. First of all, if he was truly the Son of God. And yes, Jesus was then, and still is, the only begotten Son of God. But in his human condition, like us, he was vulnerable to doubts and to questions. And Satan wanted to exploit that vulnerability. Now thankfully, Jesus being fully God himself, and also filled with the Holy Spirit, he was able to deal with Satan's questions without wavering. But Satan's question didn't simply begin and end with Jesus. His question was intended to extend on to you and me, to cause us to ask, do we truly believe that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God? And also, is this very ordinary man... 
one of the holy three in the Trinity of God. Just as with Jesus, you and I must be able to give the firm and unwavering response that yes, yes, we do believe with all of our heart that Jesus truly is the Son of God. And not only is He the Son of God, He also dwells within us every moment of every day. And just as Jesus did, you and I ought always to be able to quote the words of God as our proof. Let me read these words again that I read at the beginning of our service. This is in 1 John 4. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. Now, folks, these words tell us several things. That Jesus truly is the Son of God. That He literally dwells within us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That He truly, literally dwells within us. And that we dwell in Him. Mystical words, but truth. And that He alone is our Savior. And that we should confess with our mouths that Jesus truly is the Son of God. And folks, this last point here of confessing Jesus as the Son of God it somehow seals the agreement between us and God. We sometimes get caught up with the doctrine of, yes, we're chosen to be His sons and daughters. But there's, there's a need for us to confess Him, and that somehow seals the agreement between us and God. And it also serves to defeat our tempters. And further, you and I must not do as the foolish people of this world do and demand that our faith be kept private. How often do you hear people in the media say, my religion is private to me. You needn't be asking me those questions. God says, yes, you do. We must not be as those foolish people and keep our faith private. God actually forbids us to do that. We must openly and freely confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And we must declare to all who will listen that there is no other name given under heaven by which we shall be saved, only that of Jesus Christ. One last thought on this matter of questioning. While yes, we really should question many of the things of this life, because it's right and it's a good thing to do. But folks, we must be ever so careful when we approach these truths of God. Questioning these truths can cause very destructive doubts to arise within us. Some might argue, but we're not supposed to have blind faith. How often have you heard someone use that as a defense? We're not supposed to have blind faith, and that is absolutely true. We must not have blind faith. Because, folks, real faith is never blind because it focuses upon the person of the Lord Jesus who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. But listen, blind questioning, especially the blind questioning of God's truths, will almost always be wrong. Because blind questioning can often bring within it dangers, eternal dangers to our souls. Jesus truly is the Son of God.
And God's word is absolute truth. And God's word is trustworthy in all that it says and does. And because of that, you and I can believe it. Let me close with one last illustration. And it's one that I've voiced to you on other occasions. One of the places and venues where questioning is rampant and unbridled and actually required is within the classrooms of academia, especially on our college campuses. There, the philosophy and psychology professors and others, they openly demand of their students that each of them question everything. It's part of the philosophy behind philosophy, questioning everything. And they seem inevitably to center their questioning upon the simple truths of God. Sooner or later, the questioning will devolve down into questioning the truths of God. And it's there, in those halls of academia, where so many innocent hearts are turned away from believing in Christ. There's a statistic out there in the Christian community that says, tells us that 80% of students who come out of high school professing belief in Christ, by the time they reach their junior year in college, are seriously questioning or even denying Christ as Savior. So then, with that, knowing that to be true, you and I need to take the responsibility to do all that we can to guard our children and our grandchildren against those demonic temptations. And that's exactly what's taking place there. You and I must prepare our loved ones carefully before they go into those classrooms. And we must reinforce all along the way the truths of God to help them. So as we close for today, may I again, I want to remind us that Jesus truly is the Son of God. No question and no doubt. And yes, He can save us from our sins. No question and no doubt. And He and He alone can do that. And we can know that it is absolutely true because of His Spirit who dwells in us. Listen to these words again. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. Let's pray.